Welcome to In the Interest of National Security. I am Professor Ryan Vogel, Director of the Center for National Security Studies at Utah Valley University. And I'm Jonathan Rudd, a professor in the National Security Studies program. We are excited to be talking today with Eric Talbot Jensen, who is a professor of law at Brigham Young University. He also taught law at Fordham Law School in New York City and had an extensive career in the U.S. Army, where he served as a cavalry officer and was in the Judge Advocate General Corps. Professor Jensen received his Juris Doctorate degree from the University of Notre Dame, an LLM Master of Law degree from the Judge Advocate General School, and a second LLM from Yale University. He is the author of more than 30 publications and is a specialist on the law of war and cyber warfare. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with um, an easy question, a softball, and uh, could you briefly describe what you consider to be the major threats to American national security that cyberspace poses? Oh, yeah, a softball. Yeah, thanks, Ryan, (laughs) for that uh, lead up. Um, So let me uh, maybe divide that up into three separate categories. I think there are major threats from great power conflict. There are major threats from terrorist actions or individual actions. And then maybe terrorist threats or or grave threats from what I will call the gray zone. But let me go back to, to great power conflict. I am not someone who believes that there will be a cyber Pearl Harbor where we're going to have some adversary who's going to take cyber actions. They're going to crush the whole United States in one go. I just don't think uh, that's how it's going to play out. I don't think history shows that. I don't think strategy would would say that would be the best move. Is that because of the interconnectedness issue with the the reciprocal effect that it would have on those actors? Certainly. I mean, if you if you do something that big, it's going to have ripple effects outside the geographic space that you're trying to get to. But also because if you're going to take a step that big, why would you stop at cyber activities? So where I see the major threat from peer competitors or from great power conflict is in conjunction with armed conflict. If, for example, we were having a war with Russia or Ukraine, it, there would certainly be, or sorry, Russia or China, there would certainly be a massive cyber piece of that, but it would be in conjunction with lots of other things, including kinetic weapons and things like that. So I see that as a major cyber law of armed conflict issue, but not kind of isolated as a cyber issue. Even on that front, if a a state adversary or Russia or China use cyber as a weapon, do you think that they'd use it in a tactical way or do you think they'd use it as an attack on financial systems or something major? I think they would probably do all of that. Mm. If it was going to be no kid in a great power conflict, I think they would they would go with everything they had and we probably would do the same. So I think it would be far reaching and expansive. And like you brought up, it would have so many impacts, uh, probably globally, that it would be not good for for anybody. Now, if you assume out great power conflict and think about terrorist threats, I think that's another major issue because the, one of the things that is a game changer about cyber is it's it can be... It can be controlled and handled and used by individuals, by transnational criminal organizations. I mean, you don't drive down the road and see many people with tanks and, you know, F-22s in their driveway, but there might be someone there who has learned enough cyber stuff or who can purchase cyber tools or rent cyber tools that have very destructive uh, power and impact. So I think that's also an issue. Um, We could, it it wouldn't be an existential threat, but it would certainly be a significant threat if, if some organizations, some criminal organizations, terrorist organizations, got a hold of those kind of assets and wanted to use them against us. And then finally, I would say another probably major threat to us is in what I will call the gray zone. That's the area below a use of force where it's not, we're not really talking about armed conflict here, but we're talking about peer competition or near peer competition. And and probably two areas where it's the most uh, worrisome for the United States probably is, first of all, IP threat. 
IP theft, sorry. I mean, if you if you uh, Google uh, the F-35, the new U.S. aircraft, and you Google the J-31 or J-35, you'll see that they're extremely similar because they the Chinese got a lot of that information, were able to do what we are doing. And that's true not just in armament, but it's true in lots of different areas. The other piece of that, I think, is disinformation and misinformation. And, you know, in the last 10 years, we have had, through the internet and other cyber means, a massive a massive campaign of disinformation, information globally about things like COVID, about things like elections, things that are really important and things that governments really worry about. So in addition to those three categories, just one other one that I wanted to ask you about, what about regional powers or rogue actors, you know, countries that, that, uh, could use the asymmetric power as a way to level the playing field and like North Korea or Iran. Um, how do you, how do you assess that threat for the United States? So I think I would put them kind of in the same category as a terrorist, but a terrorist on steroids. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that, that North Korea and Iran, I mean, they are very cyber capable. I don't mean to minimize that, but they can't do the kinds of things f- that a China or a Russia could do just on the scale and on the breadth. Um, but, but I think that, that, you know, the United States ought to be very concerned about that and is very concerned about that as well. You know, along those lines, particularly with, I mean, terrorists and transnational criminals don't care about law, international law. But when we're looking at great power competition or maybe even this gray zone area, what do you see as the current state of cyber law at the international level? Well, so I guess let me try and say uh, the state of cyber affairs versus the state of cyber law. I think the state of cyber law is um, much less defined because we're we're in a we're in a place where s- normally international law is formed by treaties or conventions, and there simply is no international law specific to cyber operations. We we argue, we international lawyers argue by analogy. We say, well, look, this is what it would be in kinetic world if we were launching a missile. So let's just talk about launching an electronic missile and, and apply the same kind of rules. So there's no real law specific to um, uh, to cyber activities, but I think there's good analogy that we can use to argue with it. So I think in that sense, we're okay, but it's not really as discreet or as perfectly uh, maybe molded to cyber operations as we could have. Now, from a domestic uh, perspective of how does domestic law respond to those international issues? I think that's um, where some of the difficulty lies because there's so much going on between states and so much of it that that we don't know. I mean, both of you have worked in the world of classified information, and you know that governments do a lot of things that they don't actually admit to or talk about, right? right. And and other governments know they're doing that to them, but they also don't talk about it or admit to it. Well. International law is generally based on things that states do to each other, but it's because those it's known to everybody. And so in cyber, especially, because most of what we do is not known, it's hard to know where states are actually going yeah. with their interactions with each other. Hmm. So you, you talk about the absence of law and, and you know, emerging norms or customs. On in the soft law space or in the policy realm, what are some of the bigger um, enterprises that you've seen, you of course were famously involved and heavily involved in the Talon Manual, both uh, first and second editions. Um, but is there an emerging agreed upon policy in this area? Do you expect changes in the coming years? 
So I think the, the Talon project was really important because it, it was certainly not states. I mean, this was put together by the NATO Cyber Defense Cooperative, uh, Cooperative Cyber Cooperative Defense Center out of uh, Talon, Estonia, as a result of the Russian attack, or I shouldn't say Russian attack, attack by Russian-interested Entities, uh, we could argue about whether or not it was actually Russia, uh, mm. and maybe you guys would uh, would want to. I could bait you into that uh, <laughs> that conversation, but uh, but so Estonia said, "Wow, we just got hammered. Uh, we don't want that to happen anymore." And NATO said, "Yeah, we we see you got hammered. We don't want that to happen anymore." And so they called a, a group of of international experts. I say experts loosely because I was one of them, uh, <laughs> but international experts together to try and say, "Well, what is this international cyber law?" And our intent was never to to make law. It was to say, here are people who know the law pretty well. Uh, this is what we think the law is. And then to say, hey, states, countries, governments, you respond to what we've said. You tell us what you think about what we've said. And because you're the ones that make international law. And so I think that that is, that's the most important work of things like the Talon Manual is to get governments to step forward and say, well, we think this is right or we think this is wrong. Where do I think the law is going? Well, I think it's worked. I think more and more governments are now stepping forward and saying, yeah, you got it wrong in Talon or you got it right in Talon or, hey, France, you've got it wrong or, hey, U.S., you've got it wrong. And so we're getting to have governments speak up and, and it's becoming a much more robust discussion and one that it's much more helpful to us as we decide how cyber operations will go forward. Do you see a consensus emerging even with some of the major powers? So there is areas, there are areas of consensus. There are also areas of uh, lack of consensus. Um, you know, there, there is a, a really strong and robust discussion about how sovereignty plays into uh, cyber operations and how you understand sovereignty. Um, the UK seems to be kind of out there with their view that sovereignty isn't really a big deal in cyber operations. And you could say that some of the practices of the United States seem to point that way, whereas France and the Netherlands and some other nations have been very strong in saying sovereignty is an issue. The principle of due diligence, does a government have an obligation to prevent cyber activities from within their own territory that will impact others? That's another principle that states are hesitating to uh, to say, yeah, we're going to apply that liberally in cyber operations. So there are areas of consensus, but there are also still areas of strong discussion. And as part of this, the talent project, when you're meeting with these other experts and, and, and legal experts in this area, what is the, is there a lot of debate and discussion about the importance of like the rule of law or international rules-based order? Well, so not amongst most of us that gather for things like the Talon Manual, because we, of course, are international lawyers, so we are believers, right? I mean, I know there are a lot of people out there who don't think international law is really uh, binding or, or helpful, and maybe we can talk more about that. But I, but I, th I think that most of the detractors, the people who say, yeah, this is a, f this is like the Wild West, this is a free for all zone. Those are, there are very few governments who have openly, in fact, I don't know of any governments who have openly said that. There are very few governments who act that way. And, and um, it, that, that seems to have been a discussion that is now, we're past that and, and everybody seems to agree that law applies. The UN has a group of government experts that talk specifically about this and they have in a consensus document said it's clear international law applies to cyber operations. And that included countries like Russia and China and the United States. So I think we're past that kind of wild west discussion. And now everybody agrees international law applies. The question is how, right? Mm -hmm, right. How does it apply? Right. You spoke earlier too about this, you know, misinformation and disinformation. Just as a, as a law professor, I know 
here at in our national security studies program, one of the big issues that students are asking me about is how do we how do we vet information? How do we where do we go to find accurate information? So in your experience as a law professor, um, are you seeing are students asking that? Is that something that you discuss with your students? Oh, absolutely. And and this is one of the areas where there there might be change. I mean, I think I think that the idea that you can't trust what you see and read on the internet balances sometimes diff- difficultly with difficultly is that a word balances in a difficult way with <laughs> uh, with whether or not you should have free speech whether or not you should have the freedom to say whatever you want and the United States of course is a strong advocate of of human rights and free speech and non-censorship but then how does the consumer who lives in a world where you can put anything you want on the internet or almost anything you want on the internet figure out what is really believable and what is not there are some some really interesting proposals about making a trusted internet a trusted layer on the internet where you would have to enter your biometric data to get access mm. and therefore you know we could track you and all that stuff so there there's some pretty interesting innovative ideas about how to create some layer or some level of trust in the internet but i think that's that's probably a ways off but it may be one of the changes that we see in the next 5 or 10 years yeah Eric, you spent a large amount of your career in the United States military, both as a judge advocate and a cavalry officer, as well as special counsel to the Department of Defense General Counsel. Would you share with us an experience from your career relating to cybersecurity, armed conflict, or national security law that underlines the importance of this subject? Well, maybe, uh, I mean, I, I deployed to a number of armed conflicts uh, in my time in the military, and, and I could give you lots of examples from there, but, but maybe one that's more on the mind of your listeners is the Russia-Ukraine invasion. I mean, I think, I think what some people will say, well, that demonstrates the failure of international law and national security law because Russia invaded. And, and my response would be, well, does that mean that domestic law doesn't work because people get murdered and because things get stolen? I mean, mm-hmm. clearly not, right? So the fact that law doesn't prevent all bad things doesn't mean law doesn't work. What I see is, a res- is the response to Ukraine's invasion has demonstrated the value of international law because international law provides a platform for nations to say – no kidding, Russia, you violated international law. And because you violated international law, we can legitimately work together. We can bring about sanctions. We can, we can do all these things that they're doing. We can supply weapons. We can do all the things that the, that the nations are doing to try and help Ukraine. And they can do it with the backing of law. They can say, we're acting lawfully in response to your unlawful act. And international law provides that basis. And I think that, that that's, more, that's important to a lot of nations around the world to be able to say the things we're doing are good, they're right. It's important to the people who live in those nations to say our government is responding lawfully in the right kind of way. And so I think that that is a really good demonstration of the value of international law and national security law and how it can play a key role in hopefully bringing about peace, which is, you know, I mean, for, for those of us who have been soldiers or worked in the government like both of you have, uh, I mean, peace is, peace is why we do this, right? Ultimately, we want to have peace, not war. Great. Um, you know, Eric, you've worked both in academia and in the U.S. military, and many of our listeners are, are students, uh, whether it's at university level or just students of what's happening in the world and national security issues in general. Um, what areas of study would you encourage students and our listeners to focus on for the future when we're looking at 
these kind of cyber issues. Well, you know, I'm going to I'm going to display my bias here, right? I think law is what people ought to be studying <laughs> because, uh, in my view, law is a way to really impact uh, the world, right? I mean, there are lots of ways you can impact the world, but law certainly has been one way in which I think I have impacted the world and my peers have impacted the world because it 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 uh, it allows you to do things that. Um, persist beyond the event you're dealing with, right? I mean, when you have a law that says people should be able to meet together freely, that covers everybody, right? That's not just about the event that you're specifically working on. So law, I think law is a great way to do that. M- maybe one other thing I would say to your listeners is um, I encourage you to study uh, the things you don't believe. Seek out other views. Um, there, there are so many of us who get caught up in what we believe. I think that's part of what's led to such a divided political situation in the United States right now. You know, don't get stuck in your rut. Seek out the people who believe differently than you and ask them questions and listen to their views. If, if you really have the right view, it will only confirm you have the right view when I go, when I travel, I always, in the hotel, I, hotels I go to outside the United States, Russian television is almost always on. And I turn it on and watch it. And it, and you could be in a different world on their reporting of Ukraine, right? I mean, it's absolutely a different world. But that's important for me to know. What are the Russian people being told? Mm-hmm. What is the Russian government doing? How are they selling their information to their people? And and that's just an example. It's a broader point, I think, that that... That would be, if anything, that would be the most important message I could give to your listeners. Study, study the other views. Learn what they are. Great. That's great advice. And uh, along with that question, um, a lot of our viewers, especially our students, are interested in careers in national security. Some of them are looking at the law route. Others are looking at policy or operations or you know some of the other areas of national security. What advice or guidance would you give to students and others who are just starting off in this path? Keep going. It is a great path. It's really rewarding. Um, I, I loved, I love, I still do some stuff for the United States government. I love working for the government because I feel like the government represents good and is trying to do good. And I feel like the United States, I mean, we've had our mistakes. We've made bad decisions. There's no doubt about that. But but we're still out there trying to wear the white hat, trying to be the, the good folks who are trying to make a difference in the world for good. So if you're on that path or you think you might be interested in that path, pursue it. And you can get there a bunch of different ways. I mean, the three of us sitting around this table all got there a different way, right? For me, the military was a really great way because uh, even I stayed for a whole career, but even I have lots of friends who have gone in for some period of time, three, four years, and then used that as a launching pad to get into other other areas of uh, national security and of government service or NGO service. I mean, I think NGO service is can also be a really important aspect of national security. So, so I think that that uh, starting out, go away that you think you can get there, and then look for opportunities and and you know, just keep yourself well prepared, keep your mind open, and and watch for doors to open for you. Eric, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for coming on, and we hope to have you here again soon. I'd love that. Thanks for having me. This has been an episode of In the Interest of National Security. Our guest has been Professor Eric Talbot Jensen, a professor of law at Brigham Young University. The views expressed on this show are those of the host or our guest and not necessarily Utah Valley University or the Center for National Security Studies. Today's episode was produced by Taylin Peterson, Baxter Elwood, Dylan Marley, Nathan Griffith, and Joshua Coyman. And our theme music was created by Parker Rudd. Follow us on Instagram at iins.podcast to receive news and updates regarding future content. 
You can also join us by subscribing at Spotify or iTunes and become part of this growing community. Thanks for listening. We look forward to having you join us next time for another episode of In the Interest of National Security.